0: Hello and welcome to the AAES Politics on Point podcast and the very first episode of our special series on U.S.-Europe relations, supported by the Austrian-American Partnership Fund. In this seven-episode special, we will be covering a broad range of different topics relevant to the transatlantic relationship, providing you with perspectives and insights of high-level U.S. experts. This includes, for instance, the future of NATO, the fight against climate change, or the safeguarding of democracy and the rules-based international order. We will begin this series with a conversation between the president of the AIS, Dr. Werner Fasselabend, and Stanley R. Sloan, professor, author, and above all, expert on transatlantic relations and US foreign policy. The conversation provides an assessment of the first 100 days of the Biden administration and what the election of Joe Biden has in store for the US, Europe, and the world at large.
1: uh, the Austin Institute for European and Security Policy. And it's a pleasure that you will follow to th- today our discussion. We have a speaker. Some of you already will know him. It is uh, somebody who is an expert, especially in Euro-Atlantic relationship. And this is Stan Sloan. How to welcome to our speaker. Uh, Before we go into our discussion, uh, I want to introduce a little bit, of course, our speaker for all the people who do not know him yet. Uh, Stan Sloan, an American who is living in Vermont, uh, in the northeast of uh, the states, at the moment at least, but I guess already in his youth, he used to live in this part of the country. He studied at the University of Maine, Columbia University School of International Affairs and the American School uh, of International Service, where also he made his his philosophy doctorate. And then he had a professional career uh, at the beginning as a distinguished graduate of the Air Force Officers training school, where he also made his service uh, and worked, and afterwards for a few decades for the Central Intelligence Agency, afterwards uh, where he was especially responsible also for European affairs, and afterwards for the Congressional Research Service, where he worked uh, very close to the administrative system of the United States. He is a top expert, not only on EU and uh, American relations, but especially on all the security and defense questions because he has occupied himself a lot with this issue. He has written highly interesting, excellent books about the defense of the West and uh, also about traumatic periods. In the relationship between uh, America and Europe, and and so on, and so on. Uh, he also is an associate fellow uh, to our institute, and it is really a great, great pleasure uh, to welcome him here today uh, at a theme that might be quite interesting for many people. After four years of uh, Trump administration, of course, everybody was looking forward. And I remember very much just around about a year ago, we sat together and we discussed about uh, the chances the former Vice President Biden would have to win the elections against uh, Donald Trump. And uh, I was rather, not surprised, but still, you know, uh, it was remarkable the way uh, Stan Sloan expressed that he was completely sure that Biden would win. And I thought, okay, he is an optimist. <laughs> Let's look at reality. But I have to say, uh, yeah, my congratulations. Your expertise was fine. You told us already then that. Uh, okay, Uh, in your estimate and judgment, the Democratic Party was so eager to win these elections that they really would uh, use every opportunity. And I I guess everybody was surprised that even a state like Georgia uh, would swing, you know, would change, and certainly uh, it brought quite some surprises. Now we are in the situation that President Biden, uh has already three months of uh uh activity as a president and my first question is simply uh how do you feel about it uh how do you see this first hundred days of president uh biden is it surprising is it just as you expected uh what is your personal impression
2: Well, thank you for the kind introduction and the exaggerated number of years that I've been doing this, although it, it is a long time. And I should mention that today we're going to be talking about a lot of things that are outside my area of professional expertise. And in those areas, I'll be talking as an American citizen who not only expected Biden to win, but supported, obviously, his candidacy. And uh, so I was very pleased, although it was uh, a nervous time until the final votes were counted and, of course, a lot of turbul- turbulence afterwards because of the former president's attempt to create a, a what is called here a huge lie or the, the big lie that, in fact, the outcome was uh, illegitimate. I think if I if I were to summarize my feeling about the first 100 days, it would be that, that Biden has successfully provided uh, needed stability and calm after Trump. He has settled things down. He has provided predictability. And uh, an interesting thing that he has done in the policy area is to provide a very direct link. And he did this during the campaign, direct link between America's domestic health and its international leadership and role. And therefore, he started out with the the objective of a revitalizing American democracy, society and economy as a, the key to international leadership. and this is not a not a surprise to me it uh it in fact he he's doing what he said he would do. He made commitments during the campaign. he's trying to fulfill them. He is working on domestic issues like systemic racism, discrimination, the environment, immigration. And in foreign policy, he's doing also what I expected him to do, and that is try to rebuild America's relationship with its allies, uh, the Europeans in particular. And again, this is not a surprise for me. I, I, when he was a senator way back, when in the 1970s he asked me to do several studies for him. He sent me to Europe uh, on one occasion to do two studies, one about what would happen to NATO if the Italian Communist Party came into the government. And uh, so there were some interesting projects he assigned to me. I saw uh, that his approach to foreign policy and to U.S.-European relations was a very solid one. And we're seeing that. Seeing that in practice now, so that that is, I guess, my main going in is to say that he made commitments and he is uh, he's trying to fulfill them, and he's so far he's done a good job. His number one priority, after settling down the uh, the government and American politics, the number one objective obviously was to deal with the pandemic, and he's been so far very successful in getting the vaccines out and getting uh, the American population vaccinated in very, very, very short order.
1: Yeah. Yeah, thank you very much for this uh, general impression you gave us. Uh, You talked about domestic politics and uh, you mentioned already uh, about his first priority, uh, fighting against the pandemic. I think this is a very similar situation everywhere, but there are also a few other questions. Uh, This is the question of infrastructure, where uh, obviously it's planning uh, a big program that uh, Trump already promised, but uh, never could realize. Uh, So far for me, the question will be, uh, can Biden be successful in this respect? And there are also other questions like uh let me say migration that might be uh even a little bit dangerous for him because uh uh he probably will be in the middle of two groups of people uh somebody wanting uh i don't know more a more liberal uh migration politics on the one hand and others. Uh, that are strictly against it. So, maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, this first impressions in domestic politics because uh, this is the decisive, uh, will be probably the decisive question how strong the president will be uh, during the whole period.
2: Um, Great, big questions. Let me back up a little bit and say that part of his response to COVID was A big part of it obviously was getting Americans vaccinated. But he also got this uh, 1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill through the Congress. And he had to do that through a process that is called reconciliation, where he only needed the 50 votes that he had in the Senate plus the vice president's vote, because none of the Republicans in the Senate were supporting the measure. And this was not only a measure to to support the vaccination process, but also to uh, provide money for continuing unemployment payments, payments to states and businesses that have been hurt by the pandemic. So this was a huge accomplishment. He, he did, He's done a lot of things through executive order, but there are some things where he needs to get a law, he needs to get a, a law, a bill through Congress and his very slim majority, the Democrats' very slim majority in the Senate make this a real challenge. So he used this process. They used the process in the Senate of reconciliation and got that big relief bill through. Now, infrastructure. Infrastructure, I I think most Americans, Republicans and Democrats agree that our infrastructure seriously needs work that uh, it needs, uh, our roads need repair, our bridges need repair, so many of them are increasingly unsafe. And uh, it was interesting to me the other day that Jen, Jen Psaki, the uh, spokesperson for the President for the White House, uh, linked the uh, infrastructure challenge to the ability to compete with China. In other words, she argued in, and I assume this is the uh, administration policy, that that in order to compete effectively with China, the United States has to strengthen itself internally and a big part of that is infrastructure. I said that there was consensus. Uh, The problem is not everyone defines infrastructure the same way and not everyone agrees with the approach to funding the measure that the president is, uh, is taking. So the definition, the Republicans want to define infrastructure as largely traditional uh, roads and bridges and that kind of infrastructure. The President's bill, its uh, proposal, is uh, goes way beyond that. And uh, it includes, for example, the uh, strengthening the internet, does, access to the internet for all Americans and a lot of Republicans actually agree that that is an important part of of uh, our infrastructure now, and I think that will probably be included in any final uh, measure that makes it through Congress. But there are other measures in that bill that the Republicans have attacked strongly. The the minority leader in the in the Senate, McConnell, has called it a Trojan horse, and he's arguing that under the guise of uh, infrastructure, the administration is including a number of things that are more socially oriented and addressing the traditional Democratic uh, concerns. And there'll be a battle. There, there was a meeting at the White House yesterday with some Republicans and Democrats to have an initial discussion of this. I think the feeling is that, that the attempt to get things through Congress will stretch on probably until the fall. And it's possible that some aspects of this will come through uh, piece by piece, or that there'll be uh, one or two big bills. Uh, That is all very much up in the air. And uh, as a threat, in a sense, to the Republicans, the White House has let it be known that they would be willing to use the reconciliation procedure uh, again that they used for the COVID relief bill, and that wouldn't require any any Republican votes. But the president made a pledge, uh, in fact, during the campaign, that he would work to develop bipartisanship in managing the country, and he would like to stick to that. But the Republicans so far have shown very little sign of being willing to cooperate and provide bipartisanship from their side. And uh, the in some ways, this is a, an echo of what McConnell said at the beginning of the Obama administration, when he said that the objective of Republicans and in, in the Senate should be Republicans in the Senate should be to ensure that Obama didn't get reelected, and to some extent, it looks like he's uh, taking a similar approach to to Biden. So the, it's a big political issue as well as as a practical one. The how to pay for the infrastructure is also a big question. The Republicans under Trump put through uh, a very major tax cut for corporations and the wealthiest people in the country. Those of us in the middle class didn't see much benefit from that and the cuts that were given to business and the wealthy were made permanent and those cuts that were small cuts for middle class uh, were made temporary. Uh, So the Biden administration is, is seeking to change this, and a lot of the money for the infrastructure plan is supposed to come from increasing taxes on corporations, closing loopholes that allow some of the the biggest American corporations to something, this is something that the independent senator from my state of Vermont, Bernie Sanders, has been uh, talking about for years, and this is something that the administration is going to try to do is prevent the situations where large corporations can pay zero federal income taxes in spite of making billions and billions of dollars. In any case, the, there will be this debate coming up in the over the, the months. Uh, Leon Panetta, who is one of the most respected people, I think, uh, in American politics, he has served in a lot of cabinet positions and has, uh, uh, a number as a member of congress and people usually listen to what he says and he says that that Biden should try to go bipartisan should try to work with the republicans but uh, basically he said if they don't cooperation you should say you know goodbye and we'll have to try to do it do it on our own and of course some democrats feel there's a concern that Biden has on, from the left of his party on the left of his party, if he makes compromises with the Republicans, he's going to end up with criticism that in fact uh, the infrastructure program doesn't go far enough and doesn't include some of the critical things that they consider part of the modern infrastructure uh, for the United States. Now, the um, migration is an area that you just asked me about, and it's probably been the the most problematic area for the administration so far because the administration, Biden, came in with a pledge to undo the process of uh, dividing, breaking up families that were coming into the country. Biden and most of the Democrats believe that this is just an inhumane practice. And so we stopped that. And uh, and in fact, they are, they tend to be turning around whole families and sending them back into Mexico. And the, but the interesting thing is that a lot of these families are then t- saying to their young people, you go across the border because the Biden administration has said that unaccompanied minors would be accommodated. They would be allowed in and taken care of. And this has produced thousands and thousands of young people coming in without their parents coming in by themselves or with their brothers and sisters. And uh, this has created a, a, a practical issue. And of course, the Republicans have been, have been uh, assaulting the administration on the fact that there's this back, a huge uh, lack of facilities along the border to take care of all, the, all of these young people. So this is this is a difficult issue but I I'm guessing that the administration will manage it and of course part of the management will be something that the Trump administration refused to do and that is to go to Central America and try to assist countries like Guatemala in in dealing with their issues that uh, tend to make people want to get out of the country and uh, that that has been a democratic approach it was not a republican approach and uh, so we will see that's a long-term approach, obviously. That's not going to necessarily change things in the near term. But that will be part of the long-term approach to the the migration or immigration challenge. And uh, the, of course, a lot of other aspects of immigration policy are changing as well. The, uh, um, the uh, people that have been in the country for a long time, young people who are born in the country, Um, are now given the opportunity to have a path towards citizenship and that's a major change in policy from the Trump administration. So that that is about where we are on migration right now. It's been called a crisis at the border. I think that in some ways that's an accurate description. It doesn't mean that uh, the policy is wrong. It means that they weren't really prepared for the consequences of the policy. And they're gonna have to sort that out and also increase the facilities and the uh, to, to, to accommodate all of the young people that have been coming across the border.
1: Yeah. And if you look at the personal politics, I mean, uh, there was quite some speculation about the vice president's role. Uh, of course, there was a surprise uh, maybe a little discussion about uh, the new chief of the pentagon uh there was a quite or rather no surprise or, or not such a big surprise about uh the state department and so on how uh would you see or what would be your judgment on on biden's personal politics
2: the He has basically brought people into his administration that uh, were fairly well known inside the Democratic Party and nationally for that matter. He had a commitment to make his cabinet uh, more representative of the population. And in fact, it's a very diverse cabinet. Uh, Approximately half of the members of the cabinet are women and uh, half are non-white in roughly in that proportion. Well, that's something dramatically different from before, even from previous Democratic administrations. And so he has followed through with that commitment to have a very diverse administration. As you point out, Anthony Blinken was no surprise because the long-term uh, advisor to, to Biden and someone that had a close personal relationship with Biden. Austin was a little bit of a surprise, at least to those people who didn't didn't know him but he has been well received by the sounds of it so far I haven't heard signs of, uh, of problems in terms of people not liking his management style and so forth he made a very well-respected appointment to the head of the CIA William burns a uh, diplomat who one of the most respected American diplomats uh, and John Kerry to be the the roving ambassador for for the climate. So it's, it. he has followed through on what he promised to do. He promised to may have a diverse cabinet to give women and minorities opportunities. And yet all of these people have public policy or public uh, or, or governmental governmental position responsibilities. So they're experienced. They're not being brought in simply because they're either a woman or a minority. They're being brought in because they have experience and uh, they, they have the kind of experience that is needed in, in their jobs, that's relevant to their jobs.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, speaking about uh, persons, of course, uh, how do you see the former president's role? And maybe also how do you see uh, the Repub- Republican side, uh, Mitch McDonald's uh, role, which certainly can be decisive also for this uh, field of cooperation between the two big parties.
2: The, I'm sorry, I sort of didn't get the first Um, half of your question. ah,
1: The first question is, uh, which role does Donald Trump play in this first month? Is he uh, very strong at the stage, at the political stage? Uh, is he working behind the stage, but preparing a comeback?
2: Well, I have to watch my language here. Uh, <laughs> his, his role has been reduced in some ways because he doesn't have access to Twitter any longer. That was his primary vehicle for communicating with uh, the world and for that matter, sometimes communicating with his own officials, like telling them that they're fired. So it's uh, not having Twitter and Facebook is a real handicap on his ability to communicate and have influence. As you may have heard, as I'm sure most of the audience heard, there was he gave an address to a Republican fundraising event a couple of days ago. And at that event, he was reported to have called Mitch McConnell dumb and many other names. and. Uh, you know, Mitch McConnell uh, in the transition period, of course, did not said some very negative things about Trump. And uh, now Trump is uh, is saying a lot of negative things about Mitch McConnell. This reflects a fundamental uh, division inside the Republican Party that um, to some extent the Republican Republican Party still looks like Trump's party. But that is partly because a lot of the more traditional centrist Republicans have left the party. And if you look at the, the statistics of what's happened party-wise in recent months, the Democratic Party has been gaining members and there have been huge increases in the number of independents and most of them have come out of the uh, Republican Party. So there's a div- not only a division among Republicans but also also they are losing members because of this division and because of the reaction to, to Trump. Trump has his hardcore supporters. He still leaves out the possibility that he'll run for the presidency in 2024. And so he he has influence with um, within that hardcore, but his influence in the party as a whole is, uh, I think, Diminishing and in the country as a whole it represents a very small percentage of the American population if you compare uh, His popularity numbers all the way through his administration uh, Biden is way ahead of that uh, way ahead of where Trump was at this point Way ahead of where Trump was halfway through his term and way ahead of where Trump was at the end of his term and so I think that that uh, Trump still has and can be disruptive, and that, of course, is his primary of expertise, but he, I think that influence is diminishing, and as it is shown, uh, in fact, if in the 2022 midterm elections, he chooses to support uh, people that are more oriented toward his wing of the party, it could be very divisive if they have uh, primary campaigns featuring more traditional centrist Republicans versus uh, more radical Trump Republicans. So it's um, he's a disruptive force, and probably in the long run, he's continuing to hurt the Republican Party. And so I, that, that's where I would say he, he is mm-hmm. at this point.
1: Okay. So maybe now let's uh, go to foreign policy. And I... We'll start with a question, you know, what is, uh, how do you see Biden's general approach? And of course, especially, uh, how do you see and how do you look at uh, the Euro-Atlantic relationship?
2: Well, that's getting getting to the, the heart of what you and I work on most of the time, and uh Biden's goal was pretty clear throughout the campaign. It was clear that he wanted to return the United States to good physical and economic well-being, democracy, restoring democracy to the country, and therefore developing international responsibility and uh, respectability in uh, America's leadership. So the, the initial agenda in many ways is dominated by, internal priorities, this is not at all an an isolationist approach, it's just that Biden has defined foreign policy as very dependent on domestic policy because he wants to restore credibility and uh, respectability for the United States internationally. And he feels the best way to do that is that is by rebuilding America's democracy, its economy, its society, and obviously, this is a huge task. And look at the, the problems we are having with uh, shootings of uh, young black men, which seems to continue. Uh, and it, there are just a lot of issues going on that won't be settled, won't be dealt with immediately, and that the president alone cannot, cannot take care of. But in any case, the, the primary focus internationally of Biden in going beyond the link to domestic policy is to rebuild relations with allies and to restore the credibility of America's international leadership. The Biden truly does believe that it's a lot better to work with allies instead of against them. And we know that that Trump largely uh, sought to work against allies while he uh, cozied up to dictators, he was a very uh, busily undermining relations with our with our allies, and Biden criticized that in the campaign as leading to America alone rather than uh, america first and so rebuilding alliance relations is a top priority for for biden now of course, the problem is that the world doesn't stop turning, and as the world has been turning during the first hundred days of the Biden administration the uh, challenges have emerged uh, in full bore and um i don't know where we where we want to start but obviously uh, his objective of working with allies on all issues becomes complicated by the fact that we don't always agree on everything and that's nothing new that's that's something very old uh, but he has already made serious efforts. You know, the uh, uh, Secretary Blinken and and um, Secretary of Defense Austin have been at NATO in the last several days, uh, working and trying to coordinate, particularly policy toward um, toward uh, Ukraine, the challenge posed by by Russia in its in its aggressive approach to Ukraine, and. Um, We also know that there are the differences between the United States and some European countries on Nord Stream, the supply pipeline to supply natural gas from Russia to Germany in particular. That um, is still an an issue. It was an issue between the Trump administration and Germany. It is still an issue between the Biden administration and uh, Germany as uh, the, the administration judges that increasing reliance on russia is not in the interest of the west and so that that um, i guess is where we are on that one and there are differences about how to approach the um, the ukraine issues as well how actively should the west go in with uh, with uh, lethal firearms and so forth to support the ukrainians How uh, active should the United States and other allies be in sanctioning uh, Russian behavior? And right now, you can see what uh, Biden said about depending on diplomacy backed up by strength. He's using that approach to deal with with, uh, Russia and its, and the many issues that have come up in relations with Russia. But most recently now, uh, apparently, Biden and President Putin talked on the phone, I think yesterday, and r- reportedly, President Biden suggested a summit meeting to talk about trying to settle uh, the issue down with with uh, Ukraine, and which largely means the Russians backing off from their their aggression.
1: Uh, how do you see Biden's? Uh Biden expressing his judgment on Putin as a killer. Was it just by chance? Was it, uh, well, just the expression of uh, new politics? Or what is your judgment?
2: (laughs) Uh, I think it was uh, an expression of the fact that he has read all of the intelligence and he knows that uh, Putin has been behind orders to... uh, to kill people, and that uh, that uh, it was perhaps not the most diplomatic thing for, for Biden to do. Biden is known to speak from his heart. Sometimes it's, it's unbelievably good. Sometimes it creates some issues. In this case, it has created some issues. It does reflect the fact that um, I think the intelligence tells the president that, in fact, Putin has been willing to kill people, particularly political adversaries in in Russia, and that uh, that that is perhaps the way that uh, that Biden thinks of it. But he also realizes that he has to deal with them, and that's why he called them, obviously. And, you know, in some ways, you think about it, um, Putin may not, Mind uh, being called a killer by, by Biden, that it may enhance his feeling of self-image, uh, so forth. But that's just um, a very um, personal personal uh, reaction. But in any case, it it is uh, the it will not stop Biden from pursuing a diplomatic approach to Russia, but based on strength, not based on weakness. And part of that strength yeah. from his point of view is to bring the allies along. And uh, that that's a key part of, again, his policy of believing that the United States is stronger when it's working with its uh, allies and countries, like-minded nations
1: around the world. Maybe let's stay a little bit with uh, Russia. I mean, due to the fact that there is uh, quite some Russian movement of soldiers uh, very close to the Ukrainian border Uh, and, of course, the question if uh, Putin really would uh, not only make a big power play but uh, uh, plan some activity, uh, what will be America's role? Uh, What would be NATO's role? Is it just words of strength but uh, uh, can there also be uh, Consequences, real consequences uh, which make a strong policy as the back for a strong uh, diplomacy, or is it just uh, good words?
2: Well the um it's hard to understand or to predict exactly what or what Putin is thinking and what his planning is. The, the concern obviously is that the the what he has done so far is to push tensions up to the level where accidents could lead to more open there already is warfare that uh, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine there's all and seizure of Crimea there's already a, a state of war between Russia and Ukraine but um, Russia's activities could push it to a whole new level, and that would be very challenging for the West to decide what to do about it. I tend to think that and well, maybe it's a little bit wishful thinking, but I tend to think that Putin is maneuvering here. He's maneuvering to try to accomplish a number of objectives. He's trying to push Ukraine to the point of being more submissive and to back down in terms of what's going to happen to the uh, the south and the east part of, of Ukraine. And he also, I think, wants to put the Europeans on the spot. He knows that Europeans are not at all, many Europeans aren't even happy about having to defend themselves and certainly are not, not willing to, to uh, defend Ukraine. And I, so I think that he wants to complicate relations between Ukraine and its European neighbors. And then finally, I think he also wants to try, uh, test the Biden administration, see what kind of reactions the administration has. I'm assuming that uh, those are, or they, in my judgment, I think the people who have made those analyses are correct and that Putin is not anticipating starting a major, a more major war with Ukraine. But of course, in any situations like this, there always are dangers that uh, of accidents, and that even if these are his calculations, sort of using Russian power and advantages in that particular environment, that situation uh, could, in fact, lead places that he doesn't intend. But that I, I do, I do tend to think that he is—he's using Russian to the extent that Russia has power. That's one place where they can apply it very directly and for, and with the goal of achieving several different political objectives.
1: Yeah. I mean, many people expected that under President Biden, Russian politics would have uh, more importance uh, for the United States than under President Trump. But still, uh, this will not be the biggest question. The biggest question, of course, is uh, the big C. the question about uh, situation, relationship with China, against China, without China, whatever, the China question will be on the table in every respect and in uh, practically every situation. Uh, how do you see Biden's stance uh, towards China?
2: Well, I, if this is it is the big c no question uh, that is the big the big uh, issue in part because there is a um, let's say a consensus in washington that china is the biggest security challenge to the united states and uh, that i that or and perhaps even the number one threat to the united states and if you look at the relationship it uh, the competition between the united states and china has ideological aspects. I mean, this is, after all, the leading communist uh, ideology uh, proponent in the world. Russia is is more of a a fascist style uh, regime now. And so China is leading the the cause for uh, Marxist-Leninist approaches to society and governance. It is a power competition. Obviously, uh, China is seeking to expand its power and challenge American power, not only in the region, but globally. And it has commercial and economic aspects as well. Those all link together, obviously. You can't separate them out. But you have all of those aspects about, um, about the relationship. I would say for the most part, neither China nor the United States want war. But of course, there are circumstances, particularly when you talk about Taiwan and whether, uh, in the South China. See, there are areas where the United States and China could could come to blows. Hopefully, hopefully not. There has been dialogue, and there has to be dialogue between the United States and China. And I think that um, Biden has already talked to Qi and he has met and talked with Qi in the past. It's not not something uh, new for him. I think in many ways the Biden policy toward China will look a little bit like what, the NATO policy was toward the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And here I'm talking about what's called the Harmel approach. And that is to uh, basically have two elements in policy. And that is to deter and defend against this potential enemy, but also to dialogue with them. That was the policy that uh, that Harmel established for the relationship between NATO and the Soviet Union. I think this could could be the sort of approach that that the United States took takes toward China. Now, I think that one of the obje- objectives—I uh, know one of the objectives of the administration—is to get the allies on board with a more of a common approach to dealing with China, and this is another area of potential serious difference between the United States and its European allies. Because as everyone knows, for example, Italy is signed on to the Belt and Road Initiative, the basically the vehicle that China is using to expand not only commercially, but expand its power on a global level that uh, other European countries are getting linked into programs of of the, uh, and connections to China, including Hungary, for example, but others as well. And um, there, there's that, the question of whether all of the NATO allies could actually uh, agree on a common approach. I expect the only way that that can happen would be on something like a Harmel approach to combine defense and detente with defense and deterrence with yeah. the detente yeah. dialogue. And um, Biden is not going to be reluctant to speak out on, on human rights, as Trump obviously uh, believed that he had a special relationship with Qi. and again, that was a part of his love for uh, autocrats, dictators. Uh, for some reason, he, he loved to, uh, he admired them, we'll put it that way. T- Biden has none of that. Biden has no admiration for dictators. And he will, will, uh, will, will treat China in a very direct and, and uh, but not a provocative way. I think that he will defend American rights and interests. He will try to get the Europeans on board. He'll try to discourage the Europeans from helping China. In many ways, you can see some of the actions of European countries as, as uh, helping the agenda of the Chinese in, in, uh, in it's a global expansionist approach and obviously the united states also has um, sort of let's say uh, reciprocal dependencies with china as well china still holds uh, i don't know how much now it's less than it used to be holds american debt china is a big trade partner for the united states i think biden is going to try to develop more alternatives in some areas of supply to china as the sole supplier particularly some critical uh, elements but uh, and we'll try to get the european allies to do the same to to cooperate in developing alternatives to just depending on china and uh, so we're going to see a lot of negotiating and discussions and strategy played out here not just the united states toward china but the united states talking to the european allies and trying to find as much common ground as possible just on a on a on a personal note uh, the class that i teach on transatlantic relations at middlebury college this january i taught it virtually but we still held a, a simulation of a north atlantic council meeting and the issue that they were the students were discussing was exactly this what kind of common approach can nato develop toward china and the United States took a very strong, the, the student uh, playing the United States Secretary of State took a very strong approach and it was met with a lot of resistance from those who were playing European positions. So it was very, very realistic. And uh, we, we obviously didn't have enough time to carry it through to uh, a logical outcome. But it was actually in many ways a logical outcome because they couldn't come to an agreement. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, but of course, uh, the, if there will be a role of uh, NATO, uh, it certainly will be geographically limited role if you compare it uh, to all these uh, developments in the uh, Indo-Pacific area, you know. So far, uh, how far do you see that this certainly will go get even more into the center, not only of American politics, but of world politics. I mean, now uh, the fact that the Japanese Prime Minister was the first guest in the White House, uh, certainly is uh, just uh, a little signal that uh, there's not very much change and that this priority will be there. How do you see this situation between United States, in the Pacific area, and also uh, in combination with Europe?
2: Well, I think one thing that the United, that the Biden administration will expect from Europe is for Europe to take on more responsibility for its own neighborhood. And I don't mean the United States withdrawing, I just mean, uh, and, and again, we're talking about the traditional, We're talking about the traditional uh, burden-sharing issue in a sense, although it will not be handled in the same way, the same brutal approach that Trump took toward burden-sharing. Biden will be leading by example. That's what he promised, and I think that's what he will do. And uh, he hopes, I think, and will expect, that Europeans will take on more responsibility for the European region and the Mediterranean, for example. And all of that is obviously not as easier said than done. But I think that will be the primary ask of the United States. So it won't be asking Europeans to send military forces to to Asia. Even though uh, things like sending um, ships on on uh, uh, voyages to to uh, Asian waters by Europeans will be welcomed by the United States, just to show flag, show the flag of uh, European countries, but not to engage in anything uh, provocative, but simply to show that there is at least that level of of, uh, consensus or agreement between the United States and the European allies. And the United States will also expect, as I suggested earlier, Europeans not to make things easier for China, not to reward Chinese, policies with uh, concessions that don't have anything in return and can actually compromise Western and and, uh, European interests. Japan comes into play very strongly because just as the relationship between the United States and uh, the, the NATO allies and the members of the European Union is very important for Europe, the U.S. relationship with Japan is clearly at the same level in of, of importance to the United States in Asia. And this is, I think, a relationship that is uh, developing. Japan has been taking on more responsibility for its own defense in recent history. That's a, obviously from a U.S. point of view, that's a, a positive development. And also, there are a lot of questions, and I'm not an expert on on our force presence in Japan, but I know that is an issue as to whether the American presence, American military presence in Japan, can be improved and strengthened, and that will depend on developing a agreement between the United States and Japan on what is reasonable, what is necessary, and what the Japanese people would accept as being uh, something that is reasonable in terms of of a Japanese interest, but that there will be an, an interesting parallel discussion between the United States and Japan along with the one between the United States and Europe in terms of what kind of, of approaches and help can the allies provide if the United States is, on for its part, taking a much more, say, positive, supportive attitude toward allies how will allies reciprocate? And there will be there will be requests. I mean, I think that the Biden administration administration can realistically hope that uh, uh, America's democratic allies will be willing to uh, reward the change in American policy with greater efforts of their own that uh, end up having a, a overall benefit for what we call the west and in that sense i include japan and and other other democratic allies of the united states not just europe but they all do come together under that under that descriptor and that's why i say the 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 competition between the united states and china and between uh, the west and china does have ideological military power and economic financial aspects. And in this sense, everyone, including countries in Europe that may not be involved militarily, are uh, involved in one way or another, ideologically, in terms of keeping their uh, democracies vital and um, healthy, it's a a challenge not just for the United States, but for European countries as well but uh keeping them them that that part of their involvement in the west healthy and and also making sure that they aren't doing things that just make uh give advantages to china without getting anything in return
1: and how do you see india's re, uh, role and relationship in this game
2: i see And again, it's a country I'm not an expert in, but I think it's one of the wild cards because uh, it is a democracy, uh, you know, like all of the democracies, every every democracy has its weaknesses, and uh, India is no exception, but India is a wild card. And in fact, the way that India tilts in the competition between the West and China and the Western model of democracy and the Chinese Model uh, that is based on the control of the party uh, is is sort of a critical um, part of the picture. So it's it's I think that we should be um, trying to maintain as close a relationship with with India and looking for ways in which in which uh, our interests are merged to the point where we can have cooperation, not necessarily in an antagonistic way toward. China, but in a way of strengthening India's relationship uh, to, to the West.
1: Yeah. Maybe uh, let's come now to one of uh, the long-time discussions we do have in security policy, in the Middle East, the greater Middle East. It's quite some change. Critics, uh, uh, Biden's critics on, on MBS the Saudi Crown Prince, uh, different relationship, maybe also to be with Netanyahu, uh, and uh, a new start for also the Vienna talks on uh, nuclear uh, agreement with Iran. Uh, yeah, how do you, what is your judgment?
2: I think pretty, it's pretty clear that um, the Biden administration doesn't feel much warmth toward uh, Netanyahu. Uh, he was so close to Trump, that obviously, and, and for good reasons, because they had a lot of things in common. Uh, the United States will su- continue its support, strong support for Israel. That is, in many ways, like uh, a, a demand of American politics. And, uh, but there will be less bowing down to Netanyahu, and they'll be more willing to criticize, if not Netanyahu stays uh, in his position, in charge in, in uh, Israel. Of course, there are open questions about that, but, uh, so there will be continuing support for Israel, but no warm relationship with Netanyahu. The strategic connection with Saudi Arabia will be maintained, but it too will be less warm. Uh, the fact that, that the Biden administration is going with the strategic importance of Saudi Arabia rather than uh, values in that relationship was indicated by the fact that they did not uh, go after the crown prince. They went after lower level people in in the Khashoggi case of his murder in uh, Turkey. And uh, it, it's clear that the administration will act based on strategic interests when it's necessary, even though the values in that case, uh, there is no alignment between the Saudi royal family and the Biden administration. And so a little bit more distance from Saudi Arabia, but again, not abandoning the strategic relationship. And the, something that just demonstrates uh, that the United States under Biden is not going to bow down to Saudi priorities is the return to the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, and the fact that the discussions now have started with trying to revitalize this, Israel apparently has thrown a a wrench in the works by attacking, uh, damaging, seriously damaging an Iranian, nuclear facility and the Iranians now have responded by saying they're going to increase their enrichment processing and so that in some ways is going in the wrong direction but on the other hand uh, those are moves that uh, play into the diplomacy as well so it's um, I happen to think it was the, definitely the right thing to do to try to get the, the agreement revitalized and back in place again. Not just because it'll put the United States and Europe more on the same page on this issue, but because it's the right thing to do for for the region. and uh, I think that and in, in terms of nuclear proliferation, it's a right, right thing to do that in that area as well. That said, um, perhaps I should say one thing about this not quite in the Middle East, but we've had some big developments on Afghanistan and um, there where you know Trump had. Uh, decided to pull out all American troops by the 1st of May. Now, Biden has decided that that will be uh, done on by the 11th of September. Biden has more of a concept or his administration of everything that is required to do before you complete that pullout. It's not just pulling out the people, there's a lot of equipment that we wouldn't want to have end up in the hands of the Taliban or even uh, ISIS. And uh, also, there's a problem of the NATO troops, more NATO troops in in uh, in Afghanistan now than American troops. And they have to be, they'll be withdrawn as well. So you're allowing a little bit extra time for that withdrawal. And uh, it's, it's a very major decision. It's very difficult. There are a lot of Americans who feel we, we've made a big investment in the country and we can't throw it away right now. Others feel that we're just throwing more uh, investment lives and money down down the drain. I have mixed feelings because I have to tell you, I worry about what happens when the Taliban take over. Uh, uh, perhaps about a decade ago, I had a student in my class at Middlebury. And uh, she, while she was at Middlebury, she established a school for girls in Afghanistan. She is the founder and the director of that uh, thing called Sola, S-O-L-A, School for Leadership uh, for Girls in Afghanistan. She managed to go to school, high school basically in Afghanistan disguised as a boy under the Taliban regime, brave, brave lady. And so I worry about what will happen, not, not just in general to women in Afghanistan if the Taliban take over, but what will happen to her personally because she is uh, one of the people that uh, I admire more than uh, anyone that I've met in my life. So I, I, and I think there are a lot of cases with Americans, particularly soldiers who have served there, who have connections to their, the people that translated for them. There are a lot of American connections, particularly American connections, and some European as well, to the people of Afghanistan. Uh, But things are going to change, and I think the strategic choice has been made, that I, I agree with, even though I have concerns, personal concerns about what happens to uh, the people of Afghanistan after we leave.
1: Yeah, practically nobody can imagine a situation just leaving the country. Uh, Would you think, you know, uh, that it even was possible that Americans could give up their, their bases, their air bases in Afghanistan? I mean, due to the situation very close to the western border, Of China, very close to the hotspots, Pakistan and India, and uh, Central Asia.
2: We'll have to see what happens. I don't don't know right now. What I understand is that the withdrawal will be of all of the facilities as well as personnel, and um, of course the bases will remain there, but they won't have Americans there any longer. And uh, perhaps there are aspects of the. Uh, the agreement or the decision that we will learn about more. But right now, the, uh, what I've been hearing is that the United States will maintain standoff capabilities that will be able to go into Afghanistan if ISIS, for example, establishes a base there. But right now, it looks, from what I've seen so far, like uh, pretty much of a total withdrawal.
1: No, I I see. Uh, that's at least was more or less the message of the announcement. Yeah, that's uh, one could read. Okay, we will see. Okay, so I guess uh, yeah. we usually finish after an hour. We are already a little bit uh, later, few minutes. So my last question w- would be, you know, uh, if I think back, uh, Bill Clinton's uh, big message was it's the economy is stupid uh what will be the decisive uh message coming out for biden's presidency
2: oh this is a good good question um in some ways i i i think it will be it's the democratic health of our nation stupid that um, that's one of the things that, uh, given the divisions of polarization in the United States, the attempts by particularly on the Republican side to restrict the rights of voting of Americans, the discrimination against minorities, these are all things that will be a huge challenge for Biden and are part of his plan to rebuild respectability for the United States. And so perhaps it's, it's. it's the health of our democracy, stupid, that will be at least one of the important messages to come out of the Biden administration.
1: Yeah, so thank you very much. I I agree absolutely that this question of unity, unity of the nation, but also unity of the Western world, probably, uh, and also unity of, I don't know, uh, systems, uh, democracy and so on, certainly will be highly decisive questions for the future. Uh, And therefore, before I really thank you, I want to announce our next AIS talk next week, next Wednesday, Uh, and we will talk about Putin's power play against Ukraine. And uh, our speaker will be Boris Tarasyuk, Uh, former long-time foreign minister of Ukraine and I heartily want to invite all of you also to listen uh, to this discussion about uh, this situation very close to uh, Central Europe, very close also uh, to Austria. And now I really come to the end and I want to thank you, uh, Stan, for your frankness for the wisdom uh, you gave us and I think it really was a pleasure to follow uh, your considerations, uh, your judgments, your analysis, what is going on and what uh, will go on. Uh, We have learned a lot from you in the past and I guess uh, it will be interesting also to follow you in the future.
2: Verna, thank you very much. It's always been great working with you over the years, and I always learn something from the interaction, so it's been my pleasure.
1: So thank you very much. We wish you all the best. Uh, Nice spring weather in Vermont, and I hope to meet you pretty soon at the one or the other opportunity. I'm sure this will happen. Thank you very much, and all the best to you.
2: Thank you, and the best to you as well. Take care.